Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Route, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between food producers and food consumers, formerly known as rural and urban America. I don't think it's that case anymore. Jay Truett joining us from the Ozarks of Missouri. Andrew Henderson, he... He thought he had too long of a Christmas break and he had to go out doing what ruminant nutritionists do in the UK. Blah, blah, Jay. blah. Work, yeah, work, work. You know what, though? Good he, for him. He's not, Jay, he's not working. He's he's driving around in a pickup delivering things. Yeah. Well, and that's probably true. He probably had a bunch of swag left over from some company and he had to hurry up and get it out of the house or he was going to get booted. So uh, he had to drive around and find a customer that he hadn't hadn't given a new hat to, which does bring up a subject matter. As you well know, one of my prized possessions in life was my uh, loose tails hat that you personally gave me. What do you mean uh, was? Came... What do you mean was? Well, because for the people that have camera, they can see that my, uh, my Rottweiler <laughs> borrowed this hat and decided to wear it, and despite its despite its sturdy construction, uh, yeah. I, I just I'm not for sure I can wear that in public anymore. But I'm mm. gonna keep no, it. No, looks looks like a chore cap now. I'm, I'm mainly gonna I'm gonna keep it just to inspire fear in him. I, I did kind of probably get a little upset. Now every time he sees that hat. He just cowers uh -huh. and lays down. It's like, oh, man, I really screwed up that time. It's kind of like you only give your wife an appliance for Christmas once, right? Most wives. Uh, some wives love it, but uh, and I understand that, too. But uh, most wives that want you to give them something a little more thoughtful than a toaster, you know, and uh, the, especially if you got it at the truck stop and that it just. Uh, he knows that was a special hat. I was proud of that hat. So I'll have to order one. I'll order that in a book maybe today and, and uh, get all that squared away. This book could have your name on it. Yeah. Right here. Could sign go ahead it right and here. Find, Be number why 31. Why don't you go ahead 60. and sign, sign it for me and I'll, uh, I'll order it today. Okay. I'll make sure it gets done. So, I don't know if you've seen, I, I've not been able to wear it for some time because it's now an antique but the hat that i got married in mm -hmm. uh which happens to be a stetson and it's the hat i was wearing every day it's a hat that, that just it's got a lot of character you know what i mean well right. it developed more character one day when i came in i maybe came in for lunch i don't remember what the situation was but right at our front door waiting on a funeral <laughs> is a rodent that yeah. Libby left here when she went to Texas A&M. It's a chinchilla. Uh -huh. And I think chinchillas have a lifespan of seven years or something. Yeah. Well, we decided over the weekend this one's going on 13. And mm -hmm. I just brought my hat in. You know, for those that may not know, these hats are made of beaver. I just set it down on top of that chinchilla cage without thinking about it whatsoever. And I made the uh, cardinal sin of not turning it over. I just laid it flat. Right. And Did you know that chinchillas dine on beaver? Yeah, they love they love them some good beaver. Mm -hmm. 
Well, the, the other version of the story is one day you came in the house for lunch and fed the chinchilla. I haven't done that yet. Yeah. That's, so that chinchilla uh, uh, redesigned your hat, maybe? is the Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, oh, I thought you meant I fed it something. Yeah. No, no, you fed it a hat one day. I fed it a hat. So that hat that had a lot of character... It it looks a lot like yours right now. Yeah, but the yeah. hat band has fell apart, and there's holes in the crown. And I mean, the hat's got a lot of miles on it. Well, you know what? Still, the chinchilla brings to the table is memories at this point, probably for you. So, <laughs> still, the funniest statement ever made about the chinchilla is that Libby acquired this chinchilla. I don't know if her mother knew about it. Her dad did not. All of mm -hmm. a sudden, there's a rodent in her room. Right. And Kelly said, all I know is that if that rodent gets out of that cage, your Barbies will have a new fur coat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, uh, my daughter came home from uh, college in New York City with a ferret. Yeah. And uh, that, that went over about like a lead balloon at our, our house. And, and the sad thing was my wife had this, uh, um, what's the term they use today? Uh, special needs dog, the mental special needs dog. And uh, it, it was just so inbred. It was a little schnauzer that was so inbred that uh, it, it just had more problems than you could imagine. The one thing in life that it loved more than anything else was that stupid little ferret. Oh, and, really? Yeah, and uh, we had a. I I was just glad it was one of the few times I was glad she she, you know, left to to go do something else. I was happy up until that point, always for her to come home. She brought that parent. It was. Uh, you're gonna have to get on with the next chapter of your life really quick, honey, because your mom is not gonna be able to stand that ferret in the house. So, well. Isn't that what Christmas is all about? Getting yeah. everybody to home, <clears throat> talking about these wonderful memories. Right. No, it was all fun. We had a, um, so I think some people, I think we've talked about it before, even that, um, uh, I have a, I have a dad that's 93 years old, you know, and, uh, is, uh, uh, was a war veteran, was a classic, uh, cowboy and in, in in the true sense of the word is also uh uh one of the one of the great cattlemen that i've known in my life and i've known a lot of really great cattlemen uh, but he truly is one of the great just cattlemen he's a great horseman etc uh, etc et and uh i got to spend some time with him on uh, christmas this year and uh and sometimes honestly even during the middle of the day he forgets who i am you know yeah um, he's at that point in uh, a progression of dementia that um, is kind of sad. And so you start you start realizing at some point that you need to really treasure the, you know, the conversations and uh, and those things that go on, because uh, at some point they're just gone and uh, you will have had the last one at some point. And uh, so, yeah, Christmas is a is a pretty special thing. And and of course, somebody that's lived the life he's had. Uh, and uh, I come from a family that we tend to laugh about almost everything, 
but nothing's funnier than the stuff that almost killed you once, you know? And so we spent a lot of time talking about times when we got run over by steers, cows, horses, uh, uh, equipment, et cetera, et cetera. And, and survive to laugh about it, you know? And, uh, and then just times that we just spent good quality time together, you know, riding a horse right. together across a field, not saying a word, uh, turns out to be some of the best memories that both of us have. And, uh, I, I've often told this story, Jay, but as a kid, my worst summer day were those days that, uh, we raised seed beans for an outfit that you're familiar with. George Keller and Sons, remember the, the yeah. gunny sack in your right. your shop. Mm -hmm. Right. Anyway, we raised seed beans for Kellers, and so what that meant was that Trent every morning in the summer would walk through the dew laden soybeans up to his knees, yeah. chopping corn or cuckleburrs or cane or whatever the volunteer growth was, and I absolutely hated those mornings. Dad made me get out there. And the funny thing is, and I've told this a million times, now some of my most fond memories are walking through that soybean field with a hoe, dad on one side, grandpa on the other side, either having a great conversation or, like you just said, saying nothing at all and getting the right. job done. Right. And it's, <clears throat> I think it's one of the things that maybe especially as in, in the first world, I notice it more than in uh, other places that I've traveled in my life, we uh, we're so caught up in the rush and the and the scurry yeah. of the moment that we that we lose sight of that. One of the one of the great moments of my life. It truly was a life changing experience for me to go and spend some time in Ethiopia. And uh, uh, people people have a misconception about. Uh, about that country. The entire country is not a desert waiting to starve people to death. Most of the country is actually a breadbasket, uh, maybe the breadbasket of that region. And uh, I got to spend an evening, one evening with a family in a dirt yurt and enjoy a meal with them um, that probably cost them a month's worth of their their income to put together. But they were delighted because somebody stopped and wanted to talk to them about farming and ranching and in America and the differences between it uh, there and here and how it worked, et cetera. Uh, but what you, what you find is just the dependence that they had on each other. And, and it's not in a negative sense. I mean, in a positive sense. I got a negative time. Roll right yep. more after this. Back in three, two, one. Welcome back. We're all right. Trent Lewis alongside Jay Truitt as I'm playing with my toys, trying to get everything working. Uh, so that is a good discussion. Obviously, during the break, I had a little clip of Jessica Benson, who is on Trent on the Loose today. I read a report this morning, Jay. I, I assume you caught that, a 57-page Nixon report, yeah. and it was talking about we can't feed the world. And it's ironic. You go to that Ethiopia story. I got a Mexico story. Then I'm going to, we're going to talk about this Nixon thing. But okay. in 1998, 30 days after Libby was born, I delivered eight bulls to Muski Cahuila, Mexico. Okay. Crossed the Eagle Pass. They're uh -huh. eight red horned Lemmy bulls. So you can imagine what a great sale this was for me. Right. 
And, uh, well, first part of the sale was um, I got to the border and the border veterinarian on the Mexico side said, Senor, you have eight bulls on your trailer. My Mexican accent isn't real good. But anyway, right. something of this effect, eight bulls. You only have seven on this health paper. Uh, <laughs> I said, well, I mean, I don't remember what day of the week is, but I'm sure it's a weekend. I'm gotten down there late at night. We're crossing over to go into, it's a two hour ride on. So we had a truck lined up to haul the bulls from uh, Pedro's Negros actually to uh -huh. Muski. And a lot of things happen, but a moral of the story is he says, uh, we could take care of this right away if you have a good relationship with Benjamin Franklin. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. I said, <laughs> I said well, how many times do I need to know Ben? That's exactly what I said. How many times do I need to know him? Oh, like, you know, two, three. So yeah. I gave him three Ben Franklins and we went yeah. on. <laughs> anyway, it's we, we we get to this. It was a week long fair in Muskegon. It was a fantastic week. I mean, everybody in that town was watching at that time CNN because it was the thing that broadcast, right? So they all wanted to come to me and practice their English that they'd been doing watching yeah. CNN. <laughs> that was interesting. Right. But every night, every night they'd get this big like pot and they would cook stuff in it. Meanwhile, we're at the fair. Horses are flying by and dirt's going everywhere. It's just this event. I'm like, wow, uh, you know, it was fabulous. The best food maybe that you can ever remember eating, right? And I didn't know that until right. I get back into Texas and you're gone for a week. You're just hell-bent for election to get home, right? So I drove through someplace to eat and ate on the run. I got the feeling so sick. And yeah. you know what I decided it was that the food I was eating in Mexico was picked an hour ago by a Mexican yeah. cooked on a grill. And then I ate it. Right. Meanwhile, I go to this drive through of an unnamed place because I'm in a hurry and I got sick. And yeah, that makes gotta, me think about what you just said in Ethiopia and how much we take for granted these meals that we have. Right. No. And again, that is, that is the point, right? I mean, I, um, I spent about 10 years of my life focused almost well, no, really more like 15 years of my life focused almost exclusively on food safety uh, issues uh, from a regulatory nature right? and either trying to, to stop something or to adjust or modify something or to get permission for somebody to do something. And uh, I came, I mean, so the thing that it makes you do uh, more than anything is to uh, is to really look at the data on who gets sick and why, right? And the reality is is that the the uh, the U.S. government is trying to protect consumers from themselves on most of the really serious threats that are out there. Um, uh, e. coli. Um, H1757 is a serious is a serious event. If your if your body uh, ingests that, it's not one of those things that you're ever going to really get an immunity to uh, that we've ever been able to see. Um, and if if that happens to you and your 
you're uh, an older person or a really young person, it's a very serious health threat to you. It's a serious health threat to uh, a lot of other people and, and a threat to almost anyone. But the reality is, is that you can, you can destroy that, that, that organism literally just by cooking it properly. Right. By washing it off of lettuce uh, and lettuce, uh, leafy green vegetables really are, are one of the things that we just don't handle them very wisely as consumers. And in almost, not in every single case, but in almost every single case, the biggest concern is a consumer. Now, some, there are occasions a consumer just didn't take the responsible things, responsible measures to rinse the product off. Just rinse it off, right? I mean, would have done worlds or wash your hands in, in between eating chicken or preparing raw chicken and whatever is next or raw meats and whatever is next. And uh, you're, you're going to end up cooking the chicken to death because you have to cook chicken a lot just to make it taste well. Um, <laughs> right? So I make fun of them all the time, but um, you know, it's like whatever sauce you put on it. Yeah. Tastes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, whatever. If you <laughs> well, that, that's mostly Jay because people eat the breast meat instead of eating the muscles that actually did some work. And if you eat a, yeah. a thigh, yeah. they taste yeah. pretty good. But nobody wants the thigh; they want the breast. Yeah i i uh, I always I'm, this is going to go down a dark rabbit hole pretty quick, right? I'll just warn you. <laughs> but, hey, that's all the world is today. Which no, rabbit hole I, are you in now? I. Uh, uh, I always laugh when some veterinarian tells me that you can't feed a dog chicken bones um, because I remember a whole bunch of dogs that used to pretty much live on them. And uh, uh, around the farm, that was the uh, one of the purposes of raising chickens, you know, was to give a so that the uh, the work dogs would would sneak a treat once in a while, you know, and uh, not one of them ever choked or had any kind of issues with the chicken bone. Um, they might not have a long life, but it was usually from being run over by a by a neighbor. You know, it had nothing to do with uh, with uh, anything to yeah. do with chicken. But now you got me gonna go dig that up. I want to know because Kelly won't let me feed chicken bones to any of our dogs. Is that a myth or is that fact? I mean, the story is that yeah. the chicken bone yeah. splinters in a way that causes yeah. the, the dog to have a I'm a swallowing I'm sure problem, right? I, so, and, and this is another one of those cases where we get into this stuff, you know, especially on food items. Um, and, and I know you guys talked about it uh, in Across the Pond a little bit. The, um, and I don't think my feelings are quite as strong as yours about the entire system is a wreck. I, I do think, though, that we tend in this country to overreact when something happens that gains notoriety. and. And so then we try to create a rule that keeps it from ever happening again. Because one time something happened, then we no longer ever allow the practices behind that again. Well, the problem is, in some cases, inside the system, what you realize that you're doing, what you find out 10 years later that you've done, is that you've actually created more risk by stopping one practice and not just modifying it just a tiny bit that you you completely ban something and you go to a whole new deal. Well, then 
now now you're in a now you're in a bigger wreck uh, and and you've created more of a problem uh, and I watched I watched what happened um, I hope it's okay that I call them call them out I I, I doubt you care but I, uh, I don't anyway, care. I watched I watched what happened to the uh, ground beef industry as McDonald's um, changed their standards after some um, uh, E. coli uh, incidents that they had. And they changed the standards for the product coming into the plant when the problem was their employee wasn't cooking the product properly. Oh, and, okay. In a, Jay, in a nutshell, if XYZ ground beef manufacturer has an E. coli test in that ground beef, they don't throw it away. They cook yeah. it. They sell Correct. it as cooked beef. Correct. So it's 100% coming back to preparation, which is a hard message to share because we've been trying to do it. I got another hard message. It's already halftime. We'll be back with more Roll Route, Jay Truitt, after this. Take a moment now and talk about Protect the Harvest, a free and fed America. It did not happen by accident. It happened with tremendous work ethic, due diligence, follow through, and generation after generation of making progress. We have the ability to feed an ever-growing population because of that, and that is being underestimated. That, at the end of the day, is what we've determined is the biggest problem. Protect the Harvest gets this information to the public on how efficient today's food production system is and what makes it so, the people behind the production of food. Get details about Protect the Harvest, sign up for the newsletter, and be a part of the solution in continuing a free and fed America. Let's just say that regularly. Free and fed America at protecttheharvest.com. Welcome back. Trent Lewis alongside Jay Truitt. Andrew, he thought he was busy. Zip. He's busy delivering sheets, silage sheets. Oh really? Because yeah, as a nutritionist, he I can see where he's evolved into uh, helping protect the integrity and the quality. It's funny that we talk about this as we're talking about food safety, because literally what he's doing is increasing the safety of the food in the silage. They call him a clamp, by the way. We call him a silage bunker, and he right. sells sheets that go over those bunkers. Now. Why he's selling so many sheets in a time of year when they're not filling the clamp, I'm not really sure. But, you know, we can ask him tomorrow. Yeah, yeah that's what I was going to say. You, you'll you get a chance to nail him to the wall and ask why he skated a day. And he literally forgot that it was that. Tuesday. Yeah. Because I, I heard him tell somebody just before Across the Pond starts that uh, he was sitting in somebody's driveway. He said, I'll be with you in 30 minutes. i got to do this radio program. I said, um, so you're not joining us on roll. Oh, I totally forgot. Trent, is it okay if I get out? I, I got to do this. I got to do that. I got, yeah, okay, Andrew, go. Yeah, sure, whatever. I'm going to just take personal offense that he just forgot about me completely. <laughs> he didn't want to talk to Hillbilly from Missouri movie. anymore. <laughs> he, he's had his fill of redneck, finally. It's just yeah. done. It's up. No, right. but the, like, back to food safety. I, I just want to cap off that conversation though and I and talk about a little bit about it and I I mean it's kind of interesting there's we 
uh, Rosa DeLauro is a real famous member of Congress today. She's the one that was pictured, uh, the lady that has the crazy colored hair. And, is uh, she calling you? <laughs> no, it was somebody calling. I'm not for sure who it was, <laughs> but I just hung up on her. Um, no, she's the crazy member of Congress that was uh, um, uh, had a moment, quote unquote, air quotes, right, with uh, Zelensky. And uh, she's a senior member of the Appropriations Committee, chairman in and out of that that role, and probably played a big role in making sure that the House funding for Ukraine was in place is why that picture was taken. But in her history, food safety has been one of her stalwart issues. And we actually um, uh, uh, offered and ended up paying for and and people in the beef industry uh, picked up all of her expenses so that she would come down one time and look at a packing plant and walk through it with the people involved and talk to the people that are just on the line and, and, um, and see, understand all the things that, that people try to do to mitigate uh, any concerns with the safety of food products. And, and again, things are going to happen. Things are going to go awry. There's going to be mistakes. That's inevitable in a mass production system. Uh, but uh, by far and away, the United States has the safest, most wholesome food supply on planet Earth in a lot of respects. The problem comes later with the nutritionist and the people that are telling us what to eat. Um, uh, I think we have as bad as anyone. And in, in the middle of that conversation, um, I'm having a conversation. I'm, I'm talking to one of the senior members of the food nutrition service during that time period. And, uh, I said, you see, the problem is, is that you guys just don't think about what the risk really are here. And you're trying to, you're trying to create zero risk where there's no zero risk in anything. And this person looked at me, uh, a senior official of the United States government said, no, what you really don't understand is that there's like a million of you and 300 million consumers. And so we're going to we're going to answer to the majority. And that means you lose 300 to one. And that's a, uh, a I mean, it's really sad that the person is trying to tell me uh, every other day that, oh, we're going to do what science says and we're going to do this, that and the other. And then you just tell me now, really, at the end of the day, this is a popularity contest and yeah. we're not interested in creating a regulatory scheme or format that that protects food to the most responsible level. We're trying to get to a to a, a tolerance level that's impossible to ever meet. Anyone that ever tells you you get to zero um, tolerance is they're kidding themselves. It's not. It's not possible. Well, the other unspoken part of that is that we're building the size of government. Oh, absolutely. I mean, right? the, the number of bureaucrats just explodes. It will. And you know this, again, I also know that you're going to spend some time in Pennsylvania talking to the people that have, like, had to cut these deals. Well, those deals start by interacting with somebody that they've delegated at the state level to engage in this conversation. Right. States think they need to pass um, certain kinds of regulations because the federal government has given them uh, uh, boundaries to do it in. Well, that alone in its statement tells you that the state didn't make what they think is the very best decision 
they made a decision within the boundaries that the federal government would allow them to make. Think a little bit. And then as soon as as you're done thinking about that, tell me the time that you thought government did a better job than the private sector could do um, on anything. And I, I, I used to say, except for Department of Defense, now I don't even include that. I'll just say across the board. You know, what you just made me think of, which is really interesting, you know who's in charge of food safety for the military within each platoon? They have a veterinarian. Mm-hmm. A veterinarian is in charge of food safety. Yep. Well, in some as in some some of the services, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Army for sure, I know. Yep. Used to be to take care of the meals and make sure that that uh, the food was all right. Now, now we've gone to medical professionals, and I, I've had the same conversation with doctors, right? And a doctor will tell me, "Oh, well, you know, we want to," because um, uh, I uh, and I know I've heard you bring it up before. You you broach the subject of red meat and people that have had heart attacks, right? And the first thing that they get told is to stop their consumption of red meat. I go, well, why do you do that? Right. Where where do you get the same amino acid bases that come out of red meat, which is basically what your heart is made of is red meat. And so what where did you get that? Oh, well, I took a nutrition class. I go. So that gives you uh, the ability to give nutrition information. No, we got it from somebody, somebody, you know. Um, But the truth is, um, uh, you know, I, I learned to fly an airplane once. I can't drive a submarine. Because I also took a class on fluid dynamics somewhere in that whole whole thing. I might be able to get a jet fighter to anywhere in the world, but I couldn't get a submarine without hitting something. And so You can on. get a jet fighter where you wanted it? Yeah. How are you going to do that? I'd fly it. <laughs> Back to your doctor, doctor conversation. Uh-huh. Is the doctors all forgotten that the heart is a muscle? And that the reason that you want to build those amino acids is that amino acids build and maintain strong muscles. So yeah. why would you eliminate the food group that enables the best strength in muscles and heart being a muscle to eliminate that from your diet? And Who if, does that make if, sense to? If if you just if they just told me that they wanted us to take off the external fat and eat more uh, more ounces of actual red product. Uh, I can I can buy that. The science actually does support that. But instead, they just take, again, we're back to this thing where somebody made a decision. I think what mm-hmm. you're you're finding out is that it happened in the in the 60s right. um, that that we decided in the United States that we were going to follow this European model on the Mediterranean diet. And, and so now you're a hammer in search of a nail. You've already decided that you're gonna you're gonna go after, uh, you know, a whole grain diet that has less meat in it. Now you just need to find every nail that you can nail into the coffin, and it, you know, we that's that's the same way that we uh, um, that we ended up uh, 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 doing prohibition at one point in the United States. You know, we you blame everything in the world on on uh, whiskey and alcohol. And uh, didn't consider that human behavior had anything to do with it at all, and uh, and so we just we just ignore it. 
you know, and and pretend we 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 we're still trying to live by that same discussion that took place um, now um, sixty years ago, seventy years ago, really in the United States, which was that uh, a bunch of bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. believe that we would be incapable of feeding 300 million people in the United States. Incapable. Some When people tell me there are 8 billion people in the world, hunger is at some of the lowest levels until the, the last 12 months. We've gotten hunger down to the lowest levels in all of history. All of history. And Kip when Tom. Well, Kip, yeah. Kip Tom put this in the best summary. In 1920, and I'm sure my numbers are right. I'll verify, and if I'm wrong, I'll correct them. But in 1920, there's 2 billion people in the world. 80% of those 2 billion people are hungry at some level. Mm-hmm. In 2020, because he was using 2020 numbers, there are 8 billion people in the world, and less than 20% of them are hungry. Right. That, no. And, and I mean, those numbers are almost undeniable. Hunger right. hunger in the world today takes place largely only in places where autocrats create it. Exactly. And government created, not resource created, created. Hunger. Roll out. More with JTRA. We only have one segment left already. Back with it after this. What? Now, the truth of the matter is, Jay just sparked a thought. We talk about energy. We talk about electricity and how we continue to maintain a reliable supply of electricity. But you know what? It's been one of the great negative stigmas about coal miners. It's a dangerous, dirty business. We know that there's been tremendous consequences, and making the availables, the essentials available to us. For example, I learned when I was in Bismarck the last time that one in three of the first power line workers died on the job. One in three. There were risks. They take these risks to improve the health and well-being of their fellow man. But here's the deal. With the lignite system, there are no coal mines. The mine is actually strip mining. It's not dangerous. It's uh, it's no more dangerous than any other job. It's about getting it done. We've had a, a danger stigma place to coal mining for a reason. Now we take care of the land. The redistribution of the land is absolutely phenomenal. Folks, coal is the answer and part of our future. And get a profile of the people making it happen at Lignite.com. Welcome back, Trent, along with Jay, Andrew, Luss. Yeah, you were walking down the path of bureaucrats creating. Yeah. There's no different with the potato famine. And I learned this when I was in Dublin, Dublin, Ireland. The king created the one million yeah. uh, deaths through famine, not the blight on the potato. Right. We, we, and, and so it, Again, that takes me back to the point that I made um, uh, a little bit ago, which is name something that the government does really well uh, that the private mm-hmm. sector wouldn't do better if they were just left alone to try to figure it out and held accountable by their own consumers 
in the system. I understand we need checks and balances here and there for things related to interstate commerce and and uh, and corruption, et cetera, et cetera. Right? I'm I'm not one of the uh, I'm not that much of a libertarian, but um, you look at the you look at this uh, um, forty one to forty five hundred page, depending on how they printed it out. Right? How many pages were actually in in the uh, big budget bill that just passed that everybody um, looked at and go, oh, it's just full of pork and fat. Well, here's a little factoid for you. There's really only about $58 billion worth of new spending in that bill. The Sounds rest like of that- 58 billion too many. Yeah, no, but that's 58 billion out of nearly 1.7 trillion. trillion yeah. No, I think it'll end up being when CBO's finished with the final score and we'll hear about it, maybe not, unless I tell you about it, because I'll go look for it um, here in a in a couple of weeks. I think they'll end up scoring the real score on that bill closer to billion. And so it's going to be at least 1.9-ish for sure. And with that said, we've created all this mandatory spending levels that are going to go up and up and up, and these auto pay increase mechanisms within the system we, we call it a cut when we don't give government at least an inflationary increase. We call that a cut. Well, the rest of the country in the private sector, you don't get that. So what does that spur you to do, right? It spurs get you more. to innovate. Yeah, innovate, cut back places, be more efficient in certain places, maybe take another job on the weekend, or maybe, uh, maybe you have to move. Maybe you have to, if you're a person that lives in town, maybe you just have to move to a smaller house, right? You take that time to downsize or do whatever it is that you do, but you make adjustments in your life uh, based on the income level that you have. You don't just spend indefinitely in, in the red. You can't. You can't get away with it as a private citizen. Eventually, you have to pay all the bills. And if you don't have the money, you don't have the money. But that the federal government has been spoiled in the fact that they just print their own, right, and then charge us with the cost of the printing, and uh, and they'll they'll sell that debt to somebody somewhere or et cetera, et cetera, somebody in China or the royal family or or somebody else in the back sixty or seventy years ago, we sold it to um, Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan before that was the one that bailed us out, and uh, and so. When the government wanted to spend more than what they had, they had to look around to the private sector back then. Now they just sell it to another country. But there is no logic behind that whatsoever. Why would any country want to be holding to another country for debt? Yeah, and we we've sold a lot of we've sold a lot of debt. I know people like to talk about the Chinese. They don't really buy as much of our debt as they used to. Um, We owe. Most the bulk of that debt still is in Europe somewhere. London, uh, London, and the Netherlands, mm. and so uh, a bunch of people that at one point, you know, not that many years ago, again, eighty years ago, we were in a world war, uh, ninety now, I guess. Um, no, still, yeah, about eighty years ago, we were in a world war, uh, and those are the people that are buying our debt today, and. You just you kind of think about it a little bit. You gotta sometimes pause yourself uh, and 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 really understand who's acquiring that and why. 
Well, I don't, I'm not, I'm also not one of those people that thinks that it gives them any leverage over us because I don't think people in Washington, D.C. give a rat's patootie about really who owns that because there's always an option to not pay it or to refinance it or to do something different, right? But why, why would you allow another country to prosper off of your inefficiency? Think about that. Did, did you just say I don't have to pay my farm credit loan? I think that's not what I said. I think people in Washington, <laughs> D.C., though, are, count, are counting on the fact that at some point we'll just restructure it. Yeah. You know? and, and it's no one will ever say those words, but they just shake their head and they go, yep, we'll have to deal with it someday. And someday. All right. All right. So I have to ask you this question because Andrew's not here to ask you. But last yeah. week we talked about if um, if the House and the Senate pass this omnibus bill, can the new session reverse it? Not real. And it, I mean, theoretically they could, but Joe Biden wouldn't probably wouldn't sign a repeal. What they mm. what they can do is uh, start doing oversight, and the House at least can pass little tiny pieces that will freeze individual components of it. But you can't, the, the concept of being able to pass a bill that would, that would do an across the board. Nah, it's just not, it's, it's not going to happen. Is it mechanically possible? Yes. It's mechanically possible, but I, that's uh, why I told you guys like two weeks before they, we passed this, that it's at, it's done. We were yeah. going to pass it. Absolutely. And it made people angry because you say that, go, oh, well, you're giving up. You're not even working on it. No, it's because you understand mechanically what's realistically going to happen. What I find most interesting in uh, the theatrics that led up to the actual passing yeah. was the Mike Lee amendment, which would have given a little bit of support to the Border Patrol. And that that, that got some attention. The fact yeah. that they completely rejected supporting right. Border Patrol because that is still our number one Achilles heel. Again, on the heels of me going to Eagle Pass and standing at the Rio Grande River, that's where it's all at. We continue to allow this unfettered billion, millions, million, not billions, millions of people to cross that river. We're in trouble. We could, we could find. Um, so half that money went to defense, basically, and the other half didn't. That in large part that you when there's a 1.2 trillion of that was basically in spending that everybody knew about before the discussion even started. And out of that 1.2 trillion, it basically was about 680 billion each way towards spending on both sides. So forget about the 1.7 out of 1.2 trillion dollars. We couldn't find 40 billion dollars to make the border issue go away. That's intent. It, there was I no mean, desire yeah. to make it go away. No, uh-uh. Because we would much prefer to hold, uh, I've made this argument now for about 25 years, and it, it's absolutely the case. Anybody that tells me that we have to do uh, immigration in a comprehensive form tells me that you don't want to do it. Yeah. Well, Quite frankly, anybody that tells you we need immigration reform doesn't want immigration reform because we don't need immigration reform. We just need to follow the laws that we currently have on the books. They're pretty good. Uh, Trent, it's, I mean, it's even more sinister than that. 
it's the number one fundraising tool for both parties. Oh, now we're at the core of the issue. And so nobody wants to actually give the issue completely up except for a handful of people, literally a tiny handful of people want to really fix the issue because they raise hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars over a cycle on an issue um, that they really don't want to solve. I And I'm convinced that's why uh, much of the establishment truly hated Donald Trump. It was mutual between Republicans and Democrats. They hated him because he said he was going to fix the problem, and he started actually doing things to fix the, the, the what he thought, and I agree, but what he thought was the problem that created all the other problems. We don't have to have pu- uh, public policy changes on what to do with dreamers if you prevent dreamers from new ones. You just have to address the old ones. Well, if nothing else, what you just said makes total sense to the psyche of a group of 1,600 people in Venezuela that are not going to come up here if they think there's a chance they're not going to get in. They come up and show up because every message they've ever received is, we have an open door. Come on in. Well, and no offense. I mean, this is no offense to Mexico, but the northern tier of Mexico is not really where you want to go just hang out. Right. Um, it, it, for the rest of your <laughs> That's life. where I had to give up three Ben Franklins that I was yeah, partial to. No, exactly. Right. <laughs> and so that's, that's exactly how you get in trouble. Right. Especially if you've got one too many bulls, but no, yeah. it, I it's, it's not even rocket science to think through this. And again, when a member, of, when a member of Congress, you go to some town hall and you say, Hey, how come, uh, we can't get the border fixed. And they say, well, you know, people want to do comprehensive immigration. Go, well, if you were, if you had cancer, would you be more focused on your diet five years after the fact, or would you be more worried about actually removing that cancer? Why don't we start yeah. and just do the one thing that we all agree could help fix Remove the, the cancer. Yeah. That's and, simple. And, it, it really is that simple. And instead, um, we're buying a we're buying people a pack of Lucky Strikes in Venezuela and telling them to head for the border, right? I mean, to tie the two analogies together, it's just it's crazy talk, and we can't seem to uh, we can't seem to hold our own political establishment accountable. And the establishment brand realizes that it's that money and that. Uh, that focus keeps them tied to looking at them instead of doing the kinds of oversight that would be all. If you were to take some of these big fire flamethrowing issues away, what would Congress do with its free time? Think about it. Let's find out. In 2023, we're going to find out. This conversation started by talking about flamethrowers, and it's ended yeah. talking about yeah. flamethrowers. Jay Trent, Trent Luce. Both of us reminding you, all roads do lead to a roll route. See you tomorrow. I want to remind you that Certified Piedmontese continues to expand the available food supplies, including the newest coffee, Hawaiian coffee, Kuna coffee. 
and roasted in Nebraska, certified Piedmontese not only bringing you tender beef, but a way to live a better life. Go to the website, certifiedpiedmontese.com, and don't forget Great Plains Cattlemen. If you'd like to be the supply ch- part of the supply chain, we want you, particularly the Great Plains Cattlemen that are doing an excellent job and want to get closer to the consumer's food dollar. Certifiedpiedmontese.com. If you have any troubles, get a hold of me.